Uh, this morning, <clears throat> I want to look at, I, I believe many of us fear that God has some skeletons in the closet, right? That he's hiding probably these tough topics, these deep, dark secrets that if we were really to open up the closet doors, if we were to really open up our Bible, open up scripture and look, uh, we would find that God is not really worthy of our trust. And there's probably no topic more like that I've found for folks than the topic of hell. It's one when I came to Christ that I myself kind of wrestled with for a number of years, just going, Jesus, you're good. Like, I've encountered your goodness, but I still don't know what to do with this. I, I don't know how it, it doesn't seem to fit within the bigger story of Scripture and, and who you are. And so, uh, and I think I've underlined our fears that if we were to really look at this closely, we'd find that God is not really good or worthy of our trust. And so one of the things I'm hoping we'll be able to do this morning is take a fresh look, kind of look back, you'll open the closet door, open the Bible, and find that this isn't actually a skeleton, it's actually a part of the good news, and that it actually arises from the goodness of God rather than in contradiction to you. In fact, we're going to claim that it's actually an act of mercy on God's part. So I think if you were to ask most folks what is uh, their image of hell, they would probably give you sort of the underground torture chamber, right? This idea that deep in the belly of the earth... God has created this cavernous kind of hole and the flames are roaring and people are being tortured and it's for the particular purpose of torture. And it seems to betray that God maybe has sort of this sadistic, sinister side that throughout most of the day, he's kind of this loving, I love you, a loving father, but there's kind of this dark, twisted side um, that we don't quite know what to do or make sense of. Well, I would suggest that this is a caricature, and what we want to look at partly today is to go, A, that its location is not underground, and B, that its purpose is not torture, and that this can help kind of reframe and shift in light of the gospel how we understand what's happening here. So <clears throat> we won't be able to go through, you know, in, in uh, our, our short time today, we won't be able to go through every verse and, and everything. Uh, as Ken mentioned, I've got a book coming out on that, and if you're interested in diving in deeper into particular passages and all that, deal with all those in the book. But what I want to try and do this morning is to reframe uh, for us, just to reclaim even the big picture biblical story. What is the big picture narrative of Scripture that helps us understand how this fits into it? And let's start with the problematic story. I think if you were to ask most people, how does hell work, they would probably tell you something like this. Right now, I live on earth. One day, I'm going to die. And when I die, God will either send me up to heaven if I've done the right things, been good enough, or down to hell if I haven't. Now, there's a couple problems with the story, but one I want to focus on today is that this is not how the Bible talks about the language of heaven and hell. One issue we see is that in this story, earth is now and heaven and hell are later, right? And they almost kind of become like this one's yin and the other's yang. One's the positive side of the battery and the other's the negative side of the battery. Sort of these co-equal counterparts that are competing for my eternal destiny. And that this is not the way that scripture actually talks about them. Here's an experiment you can do to actually kind of highlight this, reveal this. If you go to BibleGateway.com, it's an online Bible website. And let's see, we'll plug in New International Version in the, the search feature there. And we're going to search for heaven and hell. We're going to look at, this is going to show us how many times the word heaven and hell appear together in the same verse throughout Scripture. Can you give me a guess? Maybe shout out some guesses. How many times do you think these two words appear in the same verse together throughout Scripture? All right. <laughs> the answer is zero. 
Now, someone got it there. <laughs> and this should be shocking, right? Because the way that our culture talks about it, and even the way that often we as churches can talk about it is, are you going to heaven? Are you going to hell? I was driving recently, saw a sign, a big billboard. It was like, heaven, hell. If you died tonight, which one? Where would you go, right? Like the language that we use is heaven or hell. Heaven or hell is kind of these two co-equal competing counterparts. But this isn't the way that scripture talks about them. Now, obviously, it talks about heaven and it talks about hell, but not in the same places and not, not necessarily in the same ways that we talk about it. So if hell is not heaven's counterpart, then what is? Heaven does have a counterpart, and we can find out what that is by running the same search, uh, only we're going to do it with heaven and earth. Can anyone shout out, uh, how many times would you guess that heaven and earth appear in the same verse in scripture? I had 20 thousands. That's a, that's a broad <laughs> spectrum. <laughs> I think I heard 114. Uh, the actual result is uh, 195 in this search here. So uh, 195 times. So roughly 200 times in Scripture that heaven and earth appear together. And these aren't kind of all clustered in the Psalms or anything like that. Like in, from Genesis to Revelation, there's this thread of heaven and earth kind of running through the biblical story. I think one of the reasons we get hell wrong is because we get heaven and earth wrong. If we reclaim kind of the biblical story of heaven and earth, I think we're going to reclaim a healthy understanding of how hell fits into it. So what is the story of heaven and earth? Well, I would suggest to you that this story starts in Genesis where God creates a good heaven and a good earth. Right? Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the language there, heavens and earth, it's kind of like our language for land and sky, right? Only when we hear land and sky, we tend to think just kind of raw, pure raw material substance, just dirt and air, right? And it's that in the biblical worldview. But for the Hebrews, it's, it's not um, distanced from God. There's a sense that it's, it's not just pure, raw, physical substance, that land and sky are charged with the presence and the purposes of God. That it's land and sky, but they're spiritually charged with God's power, his presence, his purposes. And so God creates heaven and earth good. He creates them to flourish, and he creates us so that we can dwell with him and live with him on earth, right? He's walking in the garden with Adam and Eve, and he wants us to flourish and rule the earth together with him. But shortly into the story, it takes a turn for the worse. Adam and Eve, our desire is actually when we kind of eating of the tree, right? The, the sense is we want to live life without God. We would rather rule the earth without him rather than with him. And when we do, our sin unleashes a destructive power into the world, right? Satan's destructive power in the garden, it's unleashed through our rebellion into God's world. And now thorns and thistles grow up from the earth that was once supposed to flourish. We see that the destructive power of sin, death, and hell is unleashed into God's good world. And the imagery is, if we're saying, God, we want to rule the earth without you, God kind of says, all right, I'm going to pack my bags, I'm going to go up to heaven, and we're going to see how this plays out. And the language through the rest of Scripture is that God makes his home in heaven, he establishes his throne in heaven, and from there he rules over the earth. Right? That before he walks in the garden with us, but now he rules from heaven. And from heaven he sees all that happens, he comes down to interact, he judges, he redeems, 
He is involved, and it's not that God is not involved. God is still present and interactively involved with his world. But there is a distance, there's a rupture between heaven and earth's relationship that our sin has unleashed. There is a sense that our sin has unleashed these destructive powers, and we see them today on these massive social levels. You know, we see things like genocide and sex trafficking uh, that just... um, my heart breaks. I'm sure your heart breaks too. And we see these horrible, destructive things on these massive levels, but even on these intimate, personal levels of our greed, our pride, our lust, our vanity, our rage. These are kind of like the, the vices, right? The, the sparks that set these huge wildfires that are raging in our world. So we have unleashed this destructive power of sin that has torn heaven and earth apart. So where does the story go from here? If heaven and earth are created by God, but torn by sin, what happens next in the story? And in the caricature, the picture is, okay, God is going to get us out of earth and up into heaven, right? Kind of a beam me up Scotty, like God's mission is to get us out of earth and into heaven. But in the biblical story, God's purpose is not to kind of toss earth in the cosmic wastebasket it is to actually reconcile heaven and earth. That God's mission in Christ is to reconcile heaven and earth from the destructive power of our sin. We see this uh, in a couple different places. Well, we see this all over the New Testament, but here's a few let's look at. Colossians 1. Paul is talking about Jesus and what he's accomplished on the cross. Says God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Paul is saying that God's purpose in Christ is actually to reconcile heaven and earth. That Jesus' cross, his atonement, his blood shed, that it brings peace to the war that we've waged on heaven. That God's goal is to conquer this destructive power we've unleashed, not to let it win. So God's purpose in the cross, in the work of Christ, is actually to bring back together what our sin has torn apart, to reconcile heaven and earth. And we see this throughout. The language of the New Testament is that our hope is for that day when the kingdoms of the world have become the kingdom of our God. When creation is flooded with the power and presence of God, again, as the waters cover the sea. When creation that's been groaning under the weight of our sin is liberated into its freedom under the the power and presence of God in and through his people. So there's this hope, this longing in the New Testament for this reconciliation to come. When Jesus is raised upon his resurrection, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Matthew 28 And the reason that God has given Christ all authority in heaven and on earth is to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. It's Paul in Ephesians 1. So Christ has been given all authority upon his resurrection, and the reason that he has been exalted and given all authority is to reconcile heaven and earth, to bring all things together under him and his authority. When we get to Revelation 21 and kind of the finale of the biblical story, 
John sees the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It's interesting that I think that it's not us going up to the city, it's the city coming down, bringing God's kingdom reign on earth as it is in heaven. And the city is prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. This is a wedding, it's a bride, and weddings celebrate union. And here we have the union of heaven and earth, in and through God's city. Now, what God accomplishes may be more than this, but it's not less, right? Like, God's purpose is to reconcile heaven and earth. God is on a mission to get the hell out of earth. (laughs) God's mission is not to get us out of earth and into heaven. God's mission is to reconcile what our sin has torn apart. Now, the funny thing is that phrase can be used for both of these two stories, right? God is on a mission to get the hell out of earth. That can be used for the problematic story and the gospel story. So let's use it for a second to kind of compare the difference between the stories. In the first story, the problematic one, that means God is on a mission to get us the hell out of earth, right? To kind of get us out of Dodge. Uh, God wants to leave the earth behind and take a few of us with, with him. Uh, and so the, the sense there is God wants to whisk us out of earth into heaven. But in the gospel story, uh, it's that God is on a mission to get the hell out of us on earth, if we'll receive his grace and mercy and let us make him fit, let him make us fit for his kingdom. That God is on a mission to restore and reconcile what our sin has torn apart. It's because of God's dramatic compassion for the humanity that he's brought up from the dust. It's because of his mercy that he wants to heal his world from the things that we've unleashed that are tearing it apart. So in the problematic story, we can start to see how hell starts to look like sort of this underground torture chamber, right? Like it's down and heaven's up and, and we're going there because it's not really connected to the good things that God wants to do. But in the second story, we see it's actually because of God's goodness that he wants to heal his world from our unrepentant sin. So it's because of God's goodness that God is on this mission. Well, this raises the question, Okay, so when God reconciles heaven and earth, where does the power of hell go? Where? And again, in the caricature, I think that it's usually, we think of it as like underground, right? But I want to suggest that that's actually not the biblical location, especially in the, the New Testament has a different way of describing where hell is. Jesus' word for hell is the valley, uh, is Gehenna, right? Gehenna. This is the most prominent word in the New Testament used uh, that gets translated into our English as hell. And Gehenna was an actual place outside of Jerusalem's walls known as the Valley of Hinnom. Now, uh, the word ge from Gehenna, ge is the Greek word for valley, and henna is the, the Greek word for Hinnom. And so it's this way of describing this place outside Jerusalem's walls, the Valley of Hinnom. And it's interesting, so it's an actual physical place outside the city it's not deep in the cavernous bowels of the earth. It's not a black vortex up in the, up in the, the universe somewhere. Uh, it's a place that you could map quest, right? Like you could pinpoint on a map. Now, on the one hand, I think it's good that we translate the word into English as hell, right? Uh, on the one hand, it's good because it means we don't have to run around speaking in foreign languages all the time. Uh, dad's cut off in traffic, don't have to go, ah, oh, Gehenna, you know. <laughs> Like, when you're watching your favorite sports team and they score, you know, you don't have to, yeah, you know. 
<laughs> it's, it's good because it connects to our, our culture, our language and all. Uh, but the danger, I think, that on the other hand, the, the danger can be that our word hell can have negative associations that Jesus is not implying here with the word Gehenna. And uh, as well, Jesus can have some positive associations that we miss out on that word. So let's look at the, this actual word because Gehenna, the Valley of Hinnom, uh, didn't just show up out of thin air. This was a place with a history. In the Old Testament, it had a dark and dangerous history. And I think understanding this history helps us understand what's going on when Jesus uses this word. So if we go into the Old Testament, let's take a look at what this history was. Now, on the first thing that I think we can look at is that Gehenna, the Valley of Hinnom, was a place known as a place of idolatry. It was outside the walls of Jerusalem. It was the place where the people of Jerusalem left the city and went up to worship other gods, other idols, other than Yahweh. So here is in 2 Chronicles 33. It says, King Manasseh rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had demolished. He also erected altars to the Baals and made Asherah poles. He bowed down to all the starry host and worshiped them. He sacrificed his sons in the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, practiced sorcery, divination, and witchcraft, and consulted mediums and spiritists. So this was a place of idolatry, right? When it says the valley of Ben-Hinnom, Ben is the Hebrew for son, and so it's the, the family valley, the, the, the valley of the son of Hinnom. So this is where people are going outside the city and they're worshiping other gods. And if we know Israel's history, Israel had been enslaved under Egypt, right? Under the oppressive powers of Egypt's gods. And when God redeemed her and brought her out, he brought her to himself and entered into the covenant with her. The imagery was that of a wedding, of marriage, of relationship. And so God is united to Israel as a bride. And so when Israel left God, and as the bride went out to, to uh, worship these other gods, like the gods she had formerly been oppressed under, it was like she was going out to the cheap hotel outside the city to have the affair. So Gehenna, the Valley of Hinnom, was like, it was like that. It was the cheap hotel. It was this image of a spouse who had uh, the loving husband but left, left the marriage to go out and have the affair at the cheap hotel outside the city. And the language in the Old Testament is God increasingly gets angry, right? And rightly so. When he comes home and finds out that his wife has been sleeping around with all these other gods, and partly because I want to be in life with you, and partly because those gods are going to destroy you. You keep going down that road, and it, that's the destructive place that you came from, like Egypt. So God, out of love, gets angry. Gehenna was not only a place of idolatry, it was also a place of injustice. It was known as being a place of child sacrifice. So in 2 Chronicles 28, probably one of the worst forms of Israel's idolatry, right? King Ahaz made cast idols for worshiping the Baals. He burned sacrifices in the valley of Ben-Hinnom and sacrificed his sons in the fire, following the detestable ways of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He offered sacrifices and burned incense at the high places on the hilltops and under every spreading tree. This was a place that Israel went to murder their children. And this became almost a symbol in the Old Testament for just the radical injustice that came to permeate 
Israel as a people, right? Like taking this most extreme form, you're killing your kids, and it became the symbol of what was wrong with the people as a whole as they left God. And the picture here is that now of, uh, of Israel killing her kids. If her and God are married, then when Israel kills her children, she's also killing God's kids too. And God gets angry, rightly so. If I found out, God forbid, and I'm sure if you did, that your spouse had murdered your children you know, and was having an affair, you would be livid because of your love for them and because, you know, not, not, not for bad reasons, for good reasons. We, we would expect that. And similarly, God comes home and he gets angry when he sees all this happening. And the problem with Gehenna was not just that this, the, this idolatry and injustice stayed out there. It wanted inside and it worked its way back into the city. The people who were killing their kids and worshiping the idols came back into Jerusalem to sleep at night. And before long, the idols that had been set up out there were set up in the very temple of God, which was like, sort of like the marriage bedroom, right? I mean, this is the place where God's presence dwelt intimately, most intimately with his people, where heaven and earth were reconciled. It's like the affair that started at the cheap hotel outside of town wanted back in, and it wanted to lay claim to the marriage bed. And so eventually, God gets angry and again says, okay, I'm leaving. You want life with these other lovers. I've tried to pursue you. You won't have it, and hands them over to the destructive idols. And the picture is one where Jerusalem is like a flame, right, with Israel's injustice and idolatry, and it becomes almost a metaphor for a world of flame that God created to be reconciled, but actually to, to dwell with us, but the fire of our sin is raging and tearing God's world apart. So the hope in the storyline, the hope of the story of God, our hope is that God is a good king and he's going to come back to Jerusalem. He's going to come back and return and he's going to kick the rebellion out of Jerusalem and back out into Gehenna. And he's going to establish his kingdom from Jerusalem into the earth. What can we learn from this narrative about the nature of hell? I think there's a few things. First off, it's interesting to note that in Gehenna, Gehenna is a cruel place. right? But it's not cruel because God is cruel. It's cruel because of the idols that there hold sway. To blame God for the cruelty of Gehenna or of hell is like blaming uh, an alcoholic, blaming sobriety for their affliction. Right? Sobriety is the cure the alcoholic needs, not the, the thing causing the problem. Similarly here, uh, to blame God for the cruelty of hell is to mix up the categories, right? Like it's a cruel place, but it's cruel because of the idols that we give ourselves to. When we hand ourselves over to things like sex, money, power, Lust, greed, pride, these, these vices, right? The historical language is that of vice. When you give yourself to these things, they begin to, like a vice grip, get a hold on you, and they're destructive. And the, the cruelty is not because of God. Uh, it's because of these idols that we have worshipped, that we've replaced God with, these other things that we've made ultimate. There are flames in Gehenna, but the flames in Gehenna were lit by human hands, Right? Like these were the fires that were lit to murder children. So again, there's a picture that Jesus is drawing on of a cruel place, but a place that is cruel because of our 
cruelty, because of the things, the destructive things that we've replaced God with and worshipped and unleashed. And the second thing that I think we can learn about the nature of this is that Gehenna stands opposed to Jerusalem, right? Like sin wants to invade Shalom. The word Jerusalem, uh, it actually means Yeru Shalom, the Shalom of God. The sense was that God's Shalom, his flourishing, his peace, his wholeness, his abundance would stand at the center of his people. And the picture here is that sin, the kind of fire and flame of sin wants to get inside God's Shalom and rip it apart. And we see this in our world. We see how our sin can rip our families apart, can rip our communities apart, can rip our own lives apart. Some of you this morning may be here and you're wrestling with the aftermath, either of the sin that you've done and the the impact that that's had on you and others around you. And and the good news is that Jesus offers healing if if we'll turn to him and be healed. Or maybe you're suffering under the weight of others' sin. You know, the things that have been done to you. And the good news is that God sees, he hears, he understands. He's a good king and he's coming to redeem. So the hope in this story is that God, as the good king, is going to return. He's going to liberate Jerusalem, his capital, kick the sin out into Gehenna, and establish his kingdom in the earth. <clears throat> this actual start, actually starts to sound like good news. Right? Like this storyline actually sounds, starts to sound like hope, the hope of the world. And I would suggest to you that it is. Uh, one of the ways I like to think about this is that this story is the one of the fairy tale come true. The fairy tale come true. <clears throat> what I mean by that is that this story, this longing, for the good king, the, the, the good one to come and to, to reestablish peace in the land is, is embedded in a lot of our cultural imagination and the fairy tales and stories that we tell. So as an example, this first came to life for me in the voyage of the Dawn Treader years ago. You know, with that, it's a children's story. And Prince Caspian and his crew, they've been out on the seas and they come to this uh, island kingdom, right? And for a long time, it's been... Uh, overseen by this sort of corrupt governor who took control and now the land is, co- is characterized by oppression and, ins- and slavery and injustice. And as the, the prince and his ship arrive and they scope out the land kind of discreetly and they're dismayed at the state of things, that things have gotten so torn apart. And there are many in the land who are aligned with this corrupt, unjust order of things benefiting off of it, profiting off of it. But there are others who are holding out the hope that one day the good king is going to return and is going to liberate the place and reestablish justice and righteousness in the land. Well, eventually, the prince and his followers, this movement forms around them, and they end up taking the castle. And when they take the castle, when they take the city, the capital, the rebellion, those who have been aligned with the bad order of things, they pretty much know the, the jig is up, right? And they flee outside the city. But there are some who try and stay. And there's a scene where Prince Caspian is in the castle and he's with the corrupt governor, Gumpas, who's kind of like this picture of Satan, right? And Gumpas is trying to work out this compromise, him and his crew. They say, why don't we just work out a deal? We'll let you be in charge and behind the scenes we'll keep running our operation and we'll slip you a bunch of the profit, right? If you just kind of let us stay here and do our thing, you don't have to publicly 
recognize us, you know, but just kind of let it, let us do our thing. We'll slip you some of the profit and you can still look like the good righteous king and we'll, we'll do our thing. Well, the prince, his response is this. He says, the only remaining question is whether you and the rest of the rabble will leave without a flogging or with one. <coughs> you may choose what you prefer. When we hear this in the context of a children's fairy tale, we go, yes, right? Like, that, that's what we want. We don't want the good king to compromise with the old unjust order of things. We want him to stand firm and to kick the rebellion out. And this is, again, this is the fairy tale come true. This is the same kind of storyline that we're seeing in the biblical narrative. We want Luke Skywalker to come and lead the forces, right? And to see Darth Vader and the Death Star, who've been kind of this dark force at the center of the story the whole time. We want to see them kicked out to the periphery, right? And we're excited when the Ewoks are, cel- you know, there's a big celebration. Everybody's dancing and the Ewoks are getting down and partying it up, right? Like we're excited and we're not super bummed that like, ah, oh, Vader and his forces are out, out on the outskirts. Right? We want the prince to come and to take Cinderella to the ball. And we're not dismayed or discouraged when the wicked stepsisters who've been fighting against this ending the whole time end up slinking away off to the distance, sulking. This is the sense of the story. And it's one where we start to see, too, the imagery in the New Testament. It's not so much up and down, went up and down, but it's center and periphery. So it's not so much heaven above, hell below. It's God redeeming Jerusalem, establishing his kingdom, and kicking to the periphery all those dark and destructive forces that have been holding power and influence authority throughout the story of our world. So that means that, on the one hand, this is good news for us, right? But on the other hand, there's a challenge. And the challenge is that when we hear a story like this, I think we tend to envision ourselves in the role of the good guy, right? Like, I'm Luke Skywalker, and... I'm the Prince Caspian coming to liberate the kingdom. And in the biblical story, that gets flipped, right? Like you and me, we're Darth Vader. We are the wicked stepsisters. We are those who have been fighting against God's purposes in the world. That we are those who have wanted and desired life on our own without God. That we have wanted to rule the earth without God. That we've given ourselves to these vices. That we have worshipped things other than God and made them ultimate in our lives. And the good news for us in this is that Jesus has died to atone for our sin, to give us citizenship freely in his kingdom, that he wants to embrace us. That as we stand before Christ, his question is not, are you good enough to get into my kingdom? His question is, will you let me heal you? And so the question for us, we've all got kind of this wicked root, this flame that unleashes destruction in the world inside of us. The question for us is, can we humble ourselves before Christ, before the creator of the universe, and allow him to heal us and make us fit for his kingdom? Well, we've seen that the location in the New Testament is not underground, it's outside the city. But I think, why is this significant? I think it's significant because it leads to a different motive on God's part, that the purpose in all this is uh, not torture. In the caricature, we saw the purpose is torture. But in this story, the purpose is not torture, it's protection, right? 
Like the reason Jesus kicks the junk out of Jerusalem and into Gehenna, out of his kingdom and outside his kingdom, is because he wants to protect the flourishing that he established, the good things that he redeems, his shalom, his abundance, his goodness. He wants to protect this redeemed world that he invites us into from the destructive power of our unrepentant sin. So God's motive in the storyline is, is not kind of the sadistic one of torture. It's a good one of protection. That God is a good king who protects his realm from those forces that want to tear it apart. I think we also see uh, this in <clears throat> throughout history. Not only in kind of the airy fairy, like fairy tales, you know. Some people could say, Oh, yeah, well, that's kind of fluffy, pie in the sky, the clouds, fairy tales. What about, like, kind of the hard stuff of, of real life in this world? And I'd say we see this theme, this longing throughout world history, not only in fairy tales, but in the blood and dirt of actual history and our war stories. And let's look at this in the theme of uh, liberating the capital is what I like to call it, where throughout history when there's been war and a nation or a people have been oppressed by a foreign power that has been dominating and oppressing them, the hope is for the liberation of the capital, which leads to the liberation of the country as a whole. As an example, uh, I get to work a lot in Cambodia with some of our partners there. And in the 70s, Cambodia endured one of the worst genocides of the 20th century. Nearly 20 to 25% of the population was uh, killed by the Khmer Rouge. And the Khmer Rouge were, <coughs> were brutal. And eventually, uh, Vietnam invaded and kicked the Khmer Rouge out of power. They kicked them out of the capital of Phnom Penh and they liberated the country. Right? And the Khmer Rouge soldiers, when they were defeated, they said, hey, rather than killing us off, would you just let us go up uh, outside the city, outside this region, out to the borderlands and the periphery of the country, and we don't have our money, I mean, we don't have our guns, our money, our power, our influence and authority anymore. Let us, rather than killing us, would you let us just kind of live out our days in peace, sort of eking out a living off the land out there? And the, the new government said, yes, uh, we'll, we'll allow you to do that. And they went out to this place. Now, if you are someone living in Cambodia underneath the regime of the Khmer Rouge, and there's fear and there, there's um, just the chaos and terror, your hope, your longing is for the liberation of the capital, Right? Like when you hear that the capital has been liberated, even if you're not in Phnom Penh, even if you're not in the capital, when you hear it's been liberated, there's hope that begins to surface because when the capital is liberated, it's the beginning of the liberation of the country as a whole, right? Similarly, throughout history, when people have been under dominating foreign powers, the hope is for the liberation of the capital because it means the liberation of the country as a whole is coming. This is the sense of the biblical narrative around the liberation of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is seen in the, in, the, in the Bible to be not only the capital of Israel, but in a sense the capital of the earth. Right? That it was to be this place at the center of the world where God's kingdom was established and reigned in the earth as a whole. And at the end of Revelation, when Jerusalem, this new city, comes down, the new Jerusalem out of heaven from God, it's interesting that it's not just a little city in Israel anymore, right? The dimensions are insane. They're like 15,000 miles wide by 15,000 miles high by 15,000 miles long. Like the dimensions are probably symbolic in Revelation, but you still can't get away from this overarching sense. This isn't a city. This is a country. This thing is huge. 
And if you were to drop a rock that big on Earth, we would probably spin out of orbit, right, in, in a cataclysm. So the sense is either that God's going to destroy the world with this new Jerusalem coming down, or that the Earth itself is going to be made new and whole to fit the city of God that has space and room for all who would come and be healed by the king. But God will protect. If we refuse to repent of our sin, if we give ourselves to these things that become like a vice grip over time and begin to encase and hold us in our opposition against God, God will not allow our sin for us to bring that inside of his kingdom because he's going to protect his kingdom. So in Isaiah... Isaiah holds out this hope for when God's kingdom is going to come. He's in the midst of this dark, destructive time. And he says, when God's kingdom comes, God says in Isaiah, they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. The holy mountain was Mount Zion, Jerusalem, right? When, God's, when, my, when God says, when I bring my kingdom, there will neither harm nor destroy on all of Jerusalem and all my holy mountain. And the reason they'll not be able to do this is because the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Isaiah is giving us here, and this verse that I always loved, and now I've come to see in the storyline, Isaiah is giving us the logic of hell, right? Like God is going to come and redeem Jerusalem, establish his kingdom, and he's going to protect it from our sin that harms and destroys. We see similarly in Zechariah, that Zechariah's hope is when God's kingdom comes, he says, Jerusalem will be a city without walls. It's crazy. Because of the great number of people and animals in it. Right? The sense is, dude, we need room to get everyone who will come in here. And so we're going to knock down the walls and tear them down. And everyone's coming in to Jerusalem. Right? But there's a problem. And in the old days, uh, the walls were what protected the city from invasion, from destruction. And so... Jerusalem now needs protection because the wall's been torn down. And so God says, I myself will be a wall of fire around it, and I will be its glory within. The sense is that God's city exists for the world, his kingdom exists for the world, his goodness exists for the world, to reestablish his goodness, his shalom in the world. But God stands against the destructive power of our sin. And God's glory, it's interesting to me here that God's presence, it's described as glory inside for all those who want to be with God, who want to live life in union with him. And it's described as a protective fire to those outside that want to bring the rebellion and destruction in. So we see again a good God whose purpose is protection. Redemption. So what does this mean for us today? <clears throat> Well, the imagery here is that God wants to be married to us, right? He wants union with us. That the, 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 the language is one where God wants to actually be united in life with us for eternity. And the cross, Jesus, where he dies for our sin and offers us citizenship and says, will you let me heal you? It's this wedding proposal, right? That Jesus wants us to become his bride. And I think on the one hand, union with God is probably the easiest thing in the world. And on the other hand, it's probably the hardest thing in the world. Let me explain what I mean by that. I think union with God is the easiest thing in the world because it's free. Like Jesus wants to be united with us. He's paid the price on the cross. God wants to live together in union with us forever. 
And so union with him is free because it's him that offers and that has done the work. But I think it's the hardest thing because it means giving up our independence, our autonomy, our desire to live life separate from God. It entails a humbling of our pride that we can do this thing on our own. And so the question before us today is, do we want union with God? Do we want to be united in life with the creator of all things, the creator of the universe, who longs to fill us with his spirit, to unite us to Christ, and through Christ to bring us into the glory and the kingdom of the Father? It's a beautiful picture, and it's kind of a scary picture too. Right? Like little old me, I'm going to be bound in life with the creator of the universe. But that's the invitation. And if we refuse that invitation, <clears throat> I would suggest, you know, some people might say, like, okay, this sounds better than the caricature, but still, is this like the best way that God could do this? Is this his most merciful option? And I argue that this is not only better than the caricature, but the story we've been exploring, that this is the most merciful option God has for dealing with unrepentant sin. There are only four options God has as far as I can see. So let's, let's take a quick look at these. If we refuse to be healed, I think these are the four options that, that God has. First off, if the cross is like this wedding proposal where Jesus wants to be united in life with us forever, and we say no, well, the first option is like Jesus saying, marry me and bring in your old lovers, right? <clears throat> this would be a sham marriage. If... if if the marriage proposal is one where we get to bring our sin, our idols, all the things that ripped apart, that are tearing apart the world today, then our world hasn't been really redeemed. If nations are still warring and the kids are still crying and our sin is still unleashed, then th God, God hasn't actually redeemed the world if he lets us bring all of our junk inside that tore it apart in the first place. This is like that picture of the good king in Voyage of the Dawn Treader letting uh, kind of working out a compromise with the governor, right? Like we should be crying, no, we don't, we don't want that to happen because we want the kingdom be, to be safe and flourish and established again. In the Old Testament, it's like God letting the idols and the flame and everything get back into Jerusalem. So <clears throat> this option isn't really an option because it means that God hasn't actually redeemed the world. It would be a sham marriage. The second option God has, marry me or I'll kill you. Like, this is what historically has been known as annihilation in church, right? Like, the idea that um, God's like, marry me, and if you don't, if you don't want to be with me, then I'll just kind of put you out of your misery. And I think this has seemed more merciful to some because it's usually responding to the caricature of torture, right? Like, we don't like this picture where God's sort of sadistically torturing people forever, so why doesn't he at least just put them out of their misery? And annihilation looks more appealing. But in reality... We've seen the caricature is not, not true, right? Like God's purpose isn't torture. Um, and I find this, common sense tells us if someone proposes like this, we probably need to lock them up, right? <coughs> this is not a good marriage proposal. If any of you are thinking of proposing to your fiance, I would highly suggest against leading with this. Right? <laughs> so Mary Mary Achille is not a good one. It's also not a good one because Jesus has actually conquered death. He has conquered the grave in his resurrection. Right? 
Jesus has closed the gates to Sheol, to Hades, to the grave, to death, to the, all this imagery in the Bible of the grave. Christ has conquered it and his resurrection. So one of the problems now is that with this view is that we can't get actually, we can't go back into our grave. We can't go back into death because Jesus has won the victory over it. When he raises us from the grave, his power of resurrection lays the claim of life upon us. And the question is, how do we stand in relation to Jesus as the one by whom we are raised? So this isn't really a better option. The third option, uh, marry me or I'll lock you in the basement, right? <coughs> this is, uh, I think, you know, you might call it purgatory or kind of the sense of like going, uh, marry me or else I'm going to lock you downstairs until you learn to love me, right? And this again... I think is responding to the caricature and it's going, we don't like torture, so let's at least find some constructive use for it. It's temporary and after you kind of work your way through stuff or whatever, uh, then you can be let back into life with God. But again, it's responding to a caricature and the sense is God going, I'll, I'll hurt you until you learn to love me. And this is also a really bad marriage proposal. Again, please, if you're thinking of proposing, don't do this. Like common sense tells us uh, this makes for a bad marriage proposal. So what options are left? The main option that's left is the one God actually does. And I would say it's the most merciful option on the table. It's marry me or go your own way. The God, the God of the universe says, I have paid the cost for your sin. I want to heal you, to bring you into life with me, to unite with me forever. I want to fill you with my spirit and unite you to Jesus to bring you into my kingdom. But if you prefer your independence, your autonomy, if you prefer the vices, the idols, the gnarly things that you've given yourself over to, if you would rather have that than me, then I will hand you over to it. I will protect my city from you coming inside. You can't come in and, and have that too, right? Like I will punish these things, you, these things that you've chosen, I'll punish you by containing the destructive power of your sin outside the presence of my kingdom because I'm not going to let you bring that wildfire back inside. This is, so far as I can tell, the most merciful option God has. It's mercy because he reconciles heaven and earth. It's, it's mercy that God actually just doesn't abandon our world. He actually longs to redeem creation. It's mercy because God redeems Jerusalem and he establishes his kingdom. He doesn't just leave us to our own. He actually comes to redeem. And it's mercy not only towards creation and his kingdom and all these things, but it's mercy even to the unrepentant sinner of going, I'm not going to shoot you and blow you away out of spite. I'm not going to torture you until you learn to love me, but I, I will hand you over to your choice and I'll protect my kingdom. I'll contain the destructive power of evil and protect my kingdom from it. So this morning for us, <clears throat> where this leaves us is with God's marriage proposal, right? That Jesus wants to make us his bride. I think the question for you and me is, do we want that? Do we want to become the bride of Jesus? Do we want to be united with Christ? Do we want to leave our independence? What are the idols? What are the things that you've been worshiping making more ultimate than God this morning? They may look alluring and attractive right now, 
But we see throughout the story that time and time again, when you go down that road, it leads to a place of destruction. What are the vices, the sins of the human heart that have their hold in you right now? Like the areas that, these are areas that you're going to unleash destruction. You're going to hurt your family. You're going to hurt your friends. You're going to hurt your community. You're going to hurt yourself, right? Like sin ultimately destroys not only God's world, it ultimately destroys us. Ends up tearing apart our soul. And the good news for you this morning is that Jesus' offer is, I want to heal you. He's not asking, did you jump high enough? Are you good enough to get into my kingdom? He's asking, will you let me heal you? And so the invitation this morning as we, as we come to worship is that in, as we worship, we would make God ultimate in our lives. We would orient him as the center of our universe. That we would repent of our sin and that we would allow him to make us fit for his kingdom. Will you join me in prayer? Jesus, we thank you that you are good. We thank you for your radical mercy on the cross that has paid for our sin. That it's you, you are the Savior who reconciles heaven and earth. You are the good God who's coming to liberate your capital, to establish your kingdom. We want to be made fit for your kingdom. We want to be made fit to be your bride, God. We pray that your spirit right now would be convicting us, Lord, of those areas where we have traces of rebellion against you and things that we've held over you, God. God, we pray, Lord, that you would convict us so that we could be set free from those things and be brought into life, into union with you, that we might have the abundant life that you offer, God, by being set free from our sin and brought into union with you. Jesus, we thank you ultimately that you are good, that, God, you are better than we could ask or imagine. And so, God, we look to you as one who is trustworthy, who is righteous, who is just, and who is true. And we set our hopes in you and ask, Jesus, that you would make us fit for your kingdom, you would wash us and cleanse us as your bride, and that, God, we could anticipate, even today, being a place where your kingdom reigns on earth as in heaven, as a people who are marked by your power, your presence, and your purposes for your world, God. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.